Thank you, Stephen, for reading that to us. Friends, we're on page nine of the booklets, if you'd like to follow the notes there. And we're returning to 2 Samuel chapter 11, just in case you were worried that we weren't going to continue the story. Uh, we're certainly going to make reference to that very important passage uh, in 2 Samuel 7 uh, in a few minutes. But I wanted to begin uh, in a different place altogether, as you can see at the top of the notes there on page 9. Uh, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, famous words uh, from chapter 17 of Jeremiah, where he said, The heart, the human heart, he means, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible has a bleak view of human nature. Our hearts deceive us. We fail to see ourselves as we really are, profoundly unrighteous, desperately weak, extremely foolish. Of course, we all prefer a far more positive, optimistic view of human nature, but that's part of the deception. What hope is there for the world if the Bible's diagnosis of human nature is true? 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the account of the time when it became clear that even great King David had a heart that was deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This morning, uh, we've heard how in the apparent safety and security of his royal city, David's own selfish desires conquered him. He took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and had sex with her. And then, just when he thought he'd gotten away with it, a message came to him from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant verse 5 of chapter 11 we reached the question of course is then well what is to be done try and put yourself in David's shoes what would you have done do you think one course of action could have been for David to come to his senses he could have you can imagine can't you he could have humbled himself he could have acknowledged what he's done. He could have taken responsibility for what he had done. He could have taken responsibility for the consequences of what he had done. Mind you, that would be a lot to ask. In those days, in that society, the law carried the death penalty for what David had done. I don't know whether that would have applied to the king or not. However, there have been many occasions in David's life, if you read the whole story of his life, and I hope that one thing you might be encouraged to go back and read the story of David's life, in which you will see occasion after occasion when David did risk his life to do what is right. But that was when David trusted God. Now, as we follow what David did, we're going to see on display the truth of Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. David initiated what I've called on your notes there plan A. 
Uh, he wasn't the kind of man to waste time. He was the kind of man who made decisions. And so he took decisive action. And so we see in verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Uh, Uriah, you remember, was Bathsheba's husband. Uh, you remember from this morning, if you were with us this morning, otherwise we'll fill you in. Uh, he, uh, Uriah was in David's army. Uh, General Joab was over the army. They were about 60 kilometres away to the east of Jerusalem, besieging the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. Now, I don't think that David's message to Joab would have aroused any suspicion. A king, no doubt, would be keen to hear how the campaign was going. And if anyone wondered, why did he ask for Uriah to be sent back? The answer might just have been, well, why not? A king can have his reasons. And this king certainly did. Let's see what happened. The commander in the field uh, promptly obeyed his king's order, as you would expect. We're still in verse 6. Uh, Joab sent to him, uh, sorry, Joab sent Uriah to David. I wonder what Uriah was thinking as his general plucked him out, said, back to the king. There he was, chosen out of all the soldiers to report back to the king on the progress of the war. That meant a few days relief from the discomforts and the dangers of the battlefield, a few days in the quiet safety of Jerusalem. I reckon Uriah might well have been thinking, lucky me. So he might have thought. Well, we read in verse 7 that Uriah came to David. That's what you'd expect him to do. He was an obedient servant of his king. But I can't help wondering whether Uriah, as he made his way into Jerusalem and then to the king's palace and then into the presence of the king, whether he heard any of the whispers that must have been buzzing around Jerusalem. After all, the king's night with Bathsheba was not a very well-kept secret. If you remember this morning as we were looking at the story, all those messengers sent back and forth. Do you think all of them kept the... I, I, I just think the word would have been getting out. We don't know, but I wonder whether Uriah heard anything. Well, he comes into the, uh, into the king's presence, and the king, of course, opened the conversation. Again, in verse 7, uh, uh, David, what do we read here? David asked him how Joab was. Well, that's a fair question. How the soldiers were? Good question. How the war was going. The king wanted news from the battlefront. Of course he did. David was trying, you see, to make the situation as normal as possible. Uh, those questions, of course, were not David's real concern. We know that. We don't know how long they talked, how long the conversation went. All we get is the very end of the conversation when David played his card. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David concluded the interview with what must have sounded or meant to be sounded like a trivial directive. Go down to your house and wash your feet. So it was meant to seem. The king, who really had a reputation for extraordinary kindness, again, he was living up to his name. 
But I think that we can begin to see, can't we, David's duplicity. Perhaps it comes as a bit of a shock. David has no intention of humbling himself and taking responsibility for what he has done. The hypocrisy of a man. Go down to your house, of course, means go down to Bathsheba. I wonder whether Uriah had heard any of that gossip. I wonder whether he could see what we can now see. David had brought Uriah back from the front so that he would spend the night with Bathsheba. And then who would know who the child to be born, whose the child to be born was? And who would know that it was not Uriah's? Clever, but risky. And indeed, as the story is told, it's got a number of subtleties in it. One of them is that the words wash your feet carries various levels of meaning. In Hebrew, wash your feet can be a euphemism for what David wanted to happen that night with Uriah and his wife. You see, David wanted a cover-up. He seems to have cared little what Uriah might have learnt from the gossip in Jerusalem, so long as David could plausibly deny it. That was plan A, you see. If Uriah suspected anything, uh, he didn't show it, not yet anyway. He did what an obedient servant would be expected to do when dismissed. You see verse 8 again, so Uriah left the palace. Well, of course he did. And to all appearances, plan A seems to be on track. Uriah was on his way. David took a further step to confirm his goodwill towards Uriah. Read it again at the end of verse 8. And a gift from the king was sent after him. It's probably a hamper, a meal for Uriah to share with his wife. Make it a date night, Uriah, that kind of thing. And so as the evening of Uriah's first day in Jerusalem fell, I'm pretty sure that the king felt he had every reason to think that plan A was on track. But immediately we read verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. That's a little bit odd. Why? Did Did Uriah know more than he was letting on? The most obvious explanation for his restraint that night was that he had heard something. We can't yet be sure, but I think it's beginning to look likely. Next morning, David was told, verse 10, David was told, uh, Uriah did not go home. David must have wondered. Wondered whether Uriah's strange behaviour meant that he had learnt the secret. And David really did need to know. And so he summoned Uriah for a second interview. And it began like this. Uh, David said to Uriah in verse 10 still, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? You can see he's playing with Uriah. Uh, There's no openness. There's no transparency here. uh, Exactly the opposite. But Uriah's response to David was simply astonishing. Look at it in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark 
and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love with my, to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. When you're reading Bible narratives, stories like this, it really is worth reading. You've noticed we are reading slowly, haven't you? We're working very slowly. But it's really worth reading slowly and carefully and listening, care, listening because they are so, they're, they're not only extraordinary things that happen, uh, the story of them is told in a remarkable way. You see, as David listened to those words from Uriah, he really couldn't know whether, whether Uriah was just sort of speaking honestly uh, with an innocent naivety about the whole situation or was he carefully, because you've got to be careful when you talk to a king, was he carefully but brilliantly actually issuing a not too subtle rebuke to his king? We don't know, just as David didn't know. But did Uriah's words simply express his noble character? You know, that, I, that when, when the army's away doing, fighting these battles, I, I don't live in comfort. Or did he know David's secret? Listen carefully to what Uriah said. How, look, look closely at it there in verse 11. First, he mentioned the ark, the ark of the covenant. We gather from this that this man, this Uriah, took seriously the Lord and his covenant with Israel. He was a man who acknowledged David's Lord. He knew and he cared about the ark. He was not just a Hittite, in other words. But I wonder if there was more. Was the ark meant to remind the king of what was inside the ark? The stone tablets on which were inscribed those words from God that David knew you shall not covet your neighbour's wife. You shall not commit adultery. Those words were written on the stone tablets inside the ark. Was Uriah being cleverer than he appeared? Second, Uriah, Uriah refers to the army in which he was serving as Israel and Judah. Uriah the Hittite was not simply a mercenary. He joined and served God's people over whom David was king. And again, was this a not very subtle way of saying that the one whose wife David has taken was not just a foreigner? Uriah belonged to Israel and Judah. David really had taken his neighbor's wife. And third, look at Uriah's question. How could I? go down to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife. Was he just being pious or was he subtly letting David know that he knew that to lie with my wife is what David really wanted him to do? Were those very words carefully chosen, to lie with my wife, is what David had done. Well, like David, we don't really know the answers to those questions. But if David had ears to hear, he didn't need to know the motives behind Uriah's speech to hear the rebuke. 
contained in that speech. And here was another opportunity for this king to come to his senses and make amends for his failure. David's heart deceived him into thinking that there were better options than costly repentance. And so he promptly embarked on plan B. Plan B begins verse 12, then David said to Uriah, uh, stay here uh, one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. Once again, he was the king. He didn't have to give reasons for his instruction for, for, for Uriah to stay. Um, the, uh, the real reason, of course, is obvious. Uh, David wanted more time to solve the problem. Uriah, as always, was obedient, so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Returning to day two, we learn how David followed up on that worrying conversation with Uriah, verse 13, and at, at David's invitation, Uriah ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. That was David's plan B. David obviously wanted Uriah's drunkenness to lower his noble standards. He wanted Uriah to go down to his house and lie with his wife. Read on in verse 13. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Are you beginning to see that Uriah drunk was better than David sober? Yeah? And what are you beginning to think of David now? Deceived by his own wickedness, he, he was giving no thought to what he had done. The only thing that mattered to David was avoiding public shame, preventing the exposure of his crime. He was frustrated in his attempted cover-up by Uriah's integrity or Uriah's ingenuity. We're not quite sure which, perhaps it was both. And friends, I think if we are right to see the hidden hand of God here, thwarting David's attempts to make evil have no consequences. Think about this. What would have happened if David had trusted God and come clean? I mean, I, I find it hard to imagine the conversation, but imagine he said to Uriah, look, uh, Uriah, I've done something stupid. I've done something bad. I've done something wicked. This is what's happened. And then see, where would that lead? What would have happened? If he'd confessed his wrongdoing, if he'd taken responsibility for what he'd done and took responsibility for its consequences, what would have happened? We don't know. David didn't know. But friends, doing what is right is not about then being in control of what happens. Doing what is right is about trusting God. That's why we do what is right. We do what is right and trust God for the consequences. We may or may not like the consequences. But when you trust God, you trust God and you do what is right. David had done that again and again and again throughout his life, but not this time. 
On this occasion, David did not trust God and he did not do what is right. His deceitful heart deluded him into thinking, A, that he had the wisdom and power to protect himself from the consequences of his wrongdoing. And B, that really the only consequences that really mattered had to do with his behaviour becoming known. And that delusion depended on disregarding God, blocking God out of his consciousness. I wonder if you've had that experience. Friends, beware of suppressing your conscience. That's what David seems to have done. When we do wrong, there's not one of us here who doesn't, but when we do wrong, immediate acknowledgement, willingness to bear the shame, is always, always, always the wiser path than a foolish attempt at cover-up. That will never work in the long run. You see, the God whose hand was at work in David's world is at work in our world and will finally bring every deed into account. And every attempt at cover-up is just stupid. Just stupid. The deceitfulness of the human heart that we're seeing in David's attempts to evade taking responsibility for his crime includes the delusion that sinfulness can be contained. And we think like this all the time, don't we? We can relate to this easily. We think that sin can be a matter of little consequence. And you can think yourself of something you've done of which you are ashamed. Now, most of us don't have to dig back all that far, actually. Something of which you are ashamed that you have done. And your mind keeps telling you it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to matter, it doesn't have to have consequences. And as one thing leads to another, we find it very easy to underestimate our wrongdoing. We play it down. Just try and imagine David's thinking for a moment. He looked at a beautiful naked woman. What harm can there be in a look, really? Who's hurt? He made inquiries about her. What's wrong with knowing who she is? He sent for her. Why not meet the lady? He had sex with her. Well, her husband was away. No one need know. What harm was done? Inconveniently, she fell pregnant. The easiest thing for all concerned would be to arrange things so that everyone, including her husband, would think that the child was his. The deception wouldn't hurt anyone and it would save an awful lot of trouble and embarrassment. Yeah? Unfortunately for David, whose thoughts I'm trying to imagine here, he had so far failed in his attempts to arrange things. If only Uriah had been a little bit more cooperative, a little bit less principled, a little bit easier to manipulate. David found himself now in a very difficult spot. It wasn't his fault, I can imagine him thinking. He had tried, hadn't he? 
to deal with this problem in a way in which no one was hurt. Uriah, who could have been the solution, was now the problem. David had no choice. The situation had become desperate and a desperate measure was called for. Plan C. Plan C was daring, but if it worked, David's difficulties would be over. So it must have seemed to King David. We have to follow this uh, more briefly. We'd like to, I'd like to get to the end of the chapter this time, and we need to do that. So verse 14, uh, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce, fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. I hope you're horrified. The plan, if you think about it, has all the marks of being hastily conceived. The objective, however, is crystal clear. If Uriah had come to know about David's adultery, any accusation he might like to make will be silenced by his death. If Uriah was still ignorant of David's offence against him, then his death would ensure that he never found out. Either way, Bathsheba's pregnancy could be ascribed to the dead Uriah without any fear of contradiction. How clever is that, eh? Well, let's follow Uriah back to the front line of the conflict with the Ammonites and see what happens. Uh, we're at verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab, you might notice, and again, as you read the story of David uh, in, uh, as your homework after this weekend, uh, do keep an eye on the character of Joab. He's an extraordinary figure in David's story. Uh, he usually is a little bit cleverer than his king. And he managed to camouflage the murder in a way that David had not thought of. You notice that? Uriah also died. He was just one of a number who died. So David's innocent gaze from the palace roof had led step by step to multiple innocent unnecessary deaths. Could anyone still really think that the beginning of this sequence of events was a small thing? In a moment we will meet someone who did. What happened next? I'm at verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Well, he sort of did. And that's what Joab would be expected to do. And Joab had briefed the messenger that he sent, not exactly with the truth, but with words to use if the king became unhappy with the news that he brought. Uh, this is from verse 19. He instructed the messenger, uh, <coughs> excuse me, 
When you finish giving the, the, the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to, to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, whoever it is? Um, it's really uh, a, a version of Gideon's name. Uh, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him uh, from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. It's a very strange speech that Joab made. I think it suggests that uh, what he had done troubled him. Uh, he seems to think that what he had done should trouble David. Uh, we can't know what the messenger made of all this. Did he suspect anything? Uh, just follow the messenger with me as he delivered the news. We're at verse 22. The messenger set out and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open and we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And the messenger waited waited for the king's response and I imagine his relief when the king responded not in our anger but calmly and gently see verse 25 David told the messenger say this to Joab don't let this upset you that's the gist of what he said. Literally, the king's message to Joab was, if you literally translated that, listen to this. It was, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. You see what's happened? David's deceitful heart had seared his conscience. Uriah's murdered. Other servants of David have been sacrificed. But don't see this thing as evil, Joab, because your king does not see it as evil. Great King David had become morally bankrupt. He refused to see any of the evil that he had done as evil. David was no longer a great and good man as he had been. He had become a brute. And with astonishing callous cynicism, he said, you see the end of verse uh, 25, or the middle of verse 25, for the sword devours one as well as another. Bad stuff happens, Joab. And so press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this, messenger, to Joab, to encourage him. What do you think? It had worked, hadn't it? Plan C. David's difficulties were over, weren't they? Thanks to the ingenuity of Joab, it had actually worked better than it had worked if David's plan had been carried out to the letter. And the conspiracy had been sufficiently disguised in a military confused operation that no awkward questions need arise. Several people died. Yeah, Uriah was one of them, but only one of them. 
the rumours circulating in Jerusalem could now be plausibly denied. There was no one to contradict them. The one obstacle to David covering up his crime was out of the way. It was time to move on. Get on with life. We haven't heard anything about Bathsheba for some time. Since verse 5, in fact. I am absolutely convinced, I don't think there's any doubt, that she had nothing whatsoever to do with David's schemes. Nothing. I'm absolutely sure he didn't consult her. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Unlike David, Bathsheba grieved her husband's death. David had one more move to make, verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And I can't help imagining David thinking, well, all's well that ends well. David could acknowledge this boy as his own, needn't be embarrassed when they noticed he had blue eyes too. Surely that was the end of the matter. And they could live happily ever after. Except for one thing. David had given no thought to God anywhere in this chapter. That's what we do when we sin, isn't it? When we do what we know is wrong, when we do what we know we oughtn't to do, we block any thought of God out of our minds. That's what David had done. However, as always, God had been watching. And this story concludes with this devastating closing statement. Uh, the translation, the NIV that you probably have in front of you goes like this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I don't know why the translations put it like this. It's far more serious than that. The words in verse 25 actually echo David's message to Joab. You remember David had said, Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. That closing sentence uh, of the chapter says literally, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David's effort at cover-up may have seemed successful, like our efforts at cover-up may sometimes seem successful. But it was ridiculous. We may deceive ourselves about our evil thoughts and our evil words and our evil actions, but do you really think they're hidden from God? What consequences are going to flow from the fact that the Lord had seen what David had done and seen it for what it was, evil? We need to read on into chapter 12 to find out, which means you've got to come back tomorrow morning and find out. I want to close by us thinking for a few moments about this chapter 11 that we've been uh, listening to today. What are we to make of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11? It really is one of the ugliest stories you'll find anywhere. I think there's only one uglier story in the Bible. You can have that. We can have a competition later on for you to find out which one it is. It's not very far from this chapter, actually. Uh, but this is an ugly one, isn't it? It's a story of a, a callous brute a man with the conscience of a brick 
a man and it's it's horrible it's violent why is this I mean, and this isn't a television program you know this isn't hbo this is th this is in the bible if i can put it like this god tells us this story why has god told us this story two things in the first place this story certainly shows us human nature and human sinfulness the depth of human depravity is what I've called it. We've seen, and I've been uh, underlining this, that David was not the worst man to have ever lived. This isn't the story about Adolf Hitler. Quite the contrary. He was a great and good man. He was one of the greatest and one of the best. And yet even David fell to a level as low as this. And I reckon that's a pretty solemn lesson. No matter how upright and noble a person might be, there is in human nature an inherent rottenness that can always come out given the opportunity, given the circumstances. Do I dare say in my heart that I would never act like David? Do I think in my heart that I'm really inherently good, not a brute like David? Then I think this story ought to wake me up to reality. In the human nature that we all share, there is a far greater capacity for evil than we usually think. And that's serious. Its full seriousness is made clear in that last sentence of the chapter. The thing David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Get this, friends. God's eyes are on all that happens in this world. And in God's eyes, wrong is wrong. We kid ourselves. God does not. Sin is sin. And in our day, uh, it really is important to understand this in the very area that is dealt with in this story of sexual morality. There's a lot to talk about there, but we won't go into it now. But just to say that I really do think it's very important that Christian people... Uh, whatever uh, qualms we might have, a, have about this, that we talk a lot about sexual morality. And we talk about the kind of things that we were talking about this morning uh, more and more. We talk and share with, our, uh, with, with, with ourselves and our young people. Learn. Learn what is good about God's ways in sexual morality. Learn that there are reasons, that this is not just a matter of rules. It really, and, and, and at the present time, and in the present context, those conversations ought to be going on and we mustn't be holding back from it. Uh, it's got to be done carefully, got to be done properly, got to be done well, but we must be talking about these things. But there is something more here. For this is not just a story about human sinfulness, it's a story about David's sinfulness. That's what's especially disturbing about this story. The man that we've seen commit adultery and and deceive and cover up and then murder that man was God's chosen king is that not extraordinary and the Lord had promised as we heard in 2 Samuel 7 earlier on the Lord had promised to establish David's kingdom forever could the Lord ever be expected to keep that promise now that David had so spectacularly despised the Lord? That's the question that's raised by the events of chapter 11, I reckon, and will be shockingly answered in chapter 12 tomorrow morning.
Is it possible that as we read this story of King David's wickedness, that we are at the same time reading the story of God accomplishing his purposes? Is that possible? Can you believe that? Don't you feel in your bones, haven't you sort of got, isn't it just sort of obvious that God's kingdom on earth is going to actually be advanced by good people? People a bit more like us, we might like to imagine. Not by people like David. If that's what we think, then we are quite simply mistaken. The facts of history are against us. Because the promise that God made to David, that through David's line, God would establish a kingdom that will last for all eternity. That promise was never to be forgotten. Was that because of what a Saint David was? Certainly not. It was because of what a God, God is. God is doing his thing in the midst of a world of messed up people like David, like us. In due course, the Old Testament prophets brought the assurance that the Lord is going to keep his promise. Despite the failings of David, despite the failings of everyone, God's grace is even more spectacular than David's failure. God will keep his sure promises to David. And the events of this chapter are remembered in the very first page of the New Testament, where as you look through the ancestry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, do you, have you ever noticed this? What's, it, what's included there is the wife of Uriah. She's there. Jesus is the son of David, who was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And the hope of the world is not to be found in human goodness, cleverness, or power. One of the best, cleverest, most powerful men to ever live was David. You wouldn't want to pin your hopes on him, would you? There is hope for this world, but it is despite human hopelessness. God himself is the one who's going to keep his promise. What news that is. And we're going to learn more about that tomorrow morning. Will you pray with me?